Join Global Jeans in Irvine, California, September 14th and 15th for the 6th Annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. The event brings together patients, caregivers, advocates, and rare disease stakeholders to learn, connect, share, and partner. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2017 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Patient organizations have long been working with biopharmaceutical companies, But as they have grown more sophisticated about their interactions, they're coming to understand the value in laying out the ground rules for these relationships. Last year, the International Fibrodysplasia Asifakans Progressiva Association, or IFOPA, took the unusual step to craft a set of guidelines for the organization regarding how it engages with the pharmaceutical industry. It made these guidelines public and continues to refine them. We spoke to Betsy Bogart chair of the IFOPA Research Committee, about why the organization created the guidelines, how they've affected interactions between the organization and industry, and how other organizations are interested in following suit. Betsy, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We're going to talk about the promise and perils of working with industry, what you've learned from your experience working with the IFOPA, and how to best avoid and address conflicts of interest. Perhaps to orient listeners, you can explain what the IFOPA is, your role there, and how you interact with industry. Sure. The IFOPA is the international patient organization that supports the rare disease, fibrodysplasia, ossificans progressiva, or FOP which is a severely disabling genetic condition that causes muscles to be gradually replaced by bone. It affects about 800 known individuals in the world, one of whom is my little brother, Judd. I am currently the chair of the IFOPA's research committee, which is a volunteer committee made up of interested and knowledgeable community members that informs the IFOPA's engagement with research and drug development efforts. We work very closely with our paid staff at the organization, and in particular, our phenomenal research director, Adam Sherman, who is the person at our organization who has primary responsibility for interacting with the pharmaceutical companies working on FOP. He is really our front line out there talking to and meeting with the research team trying to make therapies for FOP so that we can understand their work and needs and how we can best get to our goal of a meaningful treatment for FOP. Before Adam joined us in March of this year, it was a role that I held for three years. So I was on that front line for three years too. Well, about a year ago, the organization introduced principles to guide it and its representatives. Uh, These guidelines discuss the way that the organization engages the pharmaceutical industry. How unusual is it for a patient organization to adopt a formal set of guidelines like this? It's a great question. 
my impression is that we are in the minority, but the numbers are growing. And I hope that one day all patient organizations will have a framework for how they partner. But what led to the establishment of the guidelines? Were there any issues that occurred that led the organization to feeling that it needed to have such guidelines in place? And are they meant merely for internal use or are they meant to communicate a broader message to the companies you engage with and, and, and the patients you represent? Yes. So I'll answer the second question first, which is that they are meant for a broad group. They're, they're on our website. We want our patient community to know those guidelines and to know how we as an organization are operating. They're for our pharmaceutical partners to know how we want to operate. So they're really for everybody. And, and they also guide our, you know, our, our internal staff and our board and our committees and, and how we want to work internally too. And in terms of what led to the establishment of these guidelines, um, the brief history is that the IFOPA was founded in 1988, so it's almost 30 years old now, but it wasn't until 25 years into its existence that we finally had some pharmaceutical companies actively working on FOP. Up until then, it was really mostly the patient community and academic clinicians and researchers that were, that were in our space. Entering this new era of clinical trials brought many day-to-day -day questions about how we wanted to partner with this new, um, new and exciting entity. We were breaking new ground, seemed like every week, and we had to figure out a lot of questions about how we were going to do this, even for things that might seem simple. Um, questions like, would we accept a particular financial contribution from a company, and if so, how would we accept it, and were there conditions of that, and how would we use it, and um, just things that would seem simple are actually quite complex when you think about them in the context of the incredibly high stakes that are at play in this in this world of drug development for rare diseases. There are high personal, professional, and business stakes. There are considerable ethical and legal issues at hand. And these interactions are happening in the highly regulated and rapidly evolving environment of drug development. So it makes for a set of choices that are not always so clear or easy or agreed upon. People can have understandably very strong opinions about what we do when their child's life is on the line. And I'll also say that before I came to the IFOPA, I spent 10 years at Genzyme, which has a very strong legacy of successful partnerships with patient groups. And part of my work was the liaison with a patient community. So coming into this work, at the IFOPA, I felt pretty confident that I knew how to partner. But what I found outside the walls of Genzyme was two things. One, that there were many ways to partner, and also that nothing was written down that described what I understood to be best practice for the day-to-day -day issues. So we at the IFOPA decided to write our own guidelines. In crafting the guidelines, did you look to anyone else's guidelines as a starting point? Yes, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, there were some very good general guidance documents available. The pharmaceutical industry trade organizations in the United States and Europe both have general documents. There's another organization called CTTI, which stands for the Center for Clinical Trials Transformation. They had a very helpful guidance document. But what we found was that the existing materials were either directed at industry or at such a high level that they couldn't help us at a patient organization with some of these daily questions. So we really felt that we needed something specific and something that was targeted um, for a patient group. The section on 
patient engagement of the guidelines calls for the IFOPA to serve as a mediator between the patients and companies. Why don't you want companies engaging directly with patients? Well, we, we do want companies engaging directly with patients. We, we absolutely do. It's so important, both for patients and for the companies. A single patient can lift up and motivate an entire company. And for a patient to meet a team of researchers working on their studies is, is so special. Um, for them to know that they are not alone and that there are people trying to help is, is just incredible. So we really want these interactions to happen. Um, and we, we don't necessarily need to be a mediator of them, but we, we do like to have at least some awareness that they're happening, if not some, um, some involvement in, in the conversation, mostly so that we know that it's happening in a way that uh, reflects and respects the community as a whole. Data sharing has become an issue of increasing importance to patient advocates, but the guidelines don't seem to make a strong statement about that. You recommend learnings and outcomes to be shared in an open manner, but you don't state that as a requirement. Why is that? It's a great catch, um, and we are going to add that to a future version of our guidelines. Um, after the IFOPA wrote our guidance documents, a number of other people in our community um, liked them and encouraged us to broaden them so that other patient groups could use the same type of a guidance document. So I've been working with Susan Stein, who's the CEO of Connection Healthcare, and a roundtable of experts in this area to take the IFOPA guidelines and make them more broadly ap applicable to so that any or any patient group in our rare disease space um, could use them and, and, and borrow from them or adapt them as, as they would see fit. And that's one of the changes that we've made and additions that we've made as we've as we've evolved the guidelines. On financial contributions, the organization indicates that donations should be made through a process initiated by a written request from IFOPA and that unrestricted donations are preferable. The guidelines are emphatic about not accepting pharmaceutical company donations anonymously, but the other ports are stated as preferences. Can you draw out why these differences? Sure. I think that transparency of funding is essential, and for us it's non-negotiable. Money is too powerful of an incentive, and there are too many questions out there about how the money flowing from pharmaceutical companies to patient organizations might be influencing rare disease communities. The New England Journal of Medicine published a paper on this earlier this year. So while I I think we believe there can be some discretion and 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 a, and a range of choices in perhaps how a patient group applies their donations or how they want to solicit them, I think we feel that the flow of industry funding must be transparent. The guidelines also spell out what the organization will and will not do with regards to clinical trials. As Sergeant Friday might say, limiting comments to just the facts. Can, can you explain that? Sure. We believe that the choice to participate in a clinical trial is one of the biggest choices that someone can make in their life. And it's not a choice that we as a patient group should be influencing. It's a choice to be made by that individual in consultation with their family and their doctor. And our job is to make information available so that they can make an informed decision. 
we can help assess whether a clinical trial is being conducted in an ethical and transparent manner according to proper standards, but we don't believe it's our job to say which trial or a drug a patient should choose, especially given that what is right for one family may not be right for another. Really up to each family to decide what is right for them and for the science to bear out what will work and what won't. And we just want to um, be a resource and a conduit of information so that people are making informed choices. The last point in the guidelines address has to do with patient privacy. The guidelines oppose companies collecting and storing personal identifiers with regards to patient information. Is that something a company may need to do in terms of any long-term follow-up on data? Companies need identifiers so that they can keep track of the data that they are collecting under informed consent so that they can organize that data and manage it match it to other records from the same person, et cetera. But those identifiers shouldn't allow them to determine who that person is in real life. That's where we are drawing the line. Companies don't need that type of identifier, and we don't believe they should be storing it. It's been almost a year since implementing the guidelines. Have you discovered any deficiencies? You made reference to one change. or Are there other changes you're making? Yes. Yep, you mentioned that one earlier, and we found a couple of others that we'd like to add. One other one that we are putting in is that any engagement between patient groups and pharmaceutical companies should be done to advance disease understanding or research efforts and should have a clearly stated purpose or set of objectives. There are a couple others that we've added. Um, we know that our, our world is evolving and... Um, we believe these guidelines can be a living document and that as we all learn and grow, that we can uh, adapt them and evolve them. Have they changed the way you interact with patients or pharma companies? Have, have they changed the way either of them interact with you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I know that the process of working on them has clarified a lot of things in my own mind. And... Um, and I think provided some helpful clarity for everybody. I, I think that the companies that we work with, as well as our own patient community, appreciate the clarity and um, and the openness of, of of our description of how we how we operate. Um, there are some instances in which, through the guidelines, we are setting some limits or perhaps asking to operate in a way that. Um, maybe a, a company might not like or it might not work as well for them. So we're continually navigating through those conversations um, and, and responding to our partners and, and finding a way forward um, so that we are we are evolving our relationship and and, um, and being responsive to, to, you know, to immediate situations. You mentioned there was some interest among other patient groups to draw on these guidelines and, and implement them elsewhere. What's the state of that? We are almost ready to finalize and publish an updated set of guidelines that is not specific to the IFOPA, but we believe will be helpful to other patient groups too. So we're really excited to have those ready. Um, they just have been going through a final round of review with our roundtable participants. And, um, and we look forward to having them published soon. Betsy Bogard, Chair of the IFOPA Research Committee. Betsy, thanks as always. Thanks so much.
If you'd like to meet Betsy Bogard and learn more about the IFOPA guidelines, join us for the Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit, September 14th and 15th, in Irvine, California. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2017 summit. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.